Chapter Thirty Six of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods, by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Thirty Six: A Son of Crusaders and Privateers. Tell me about yourself and your trip," he urged. In response, I related all that I thought would interest him, and he appeared quite excited over my tale. "'Now I shall tell you about myself, who and what I am. My name is surrounded with such hate and fear that no one can judge what is the truth and what is false, what is history and what myth. Sometime you will write about it, remembering your trip through Mongolia and your sojourn at the yurta of the bloody general.' He shut his eyes, smoking as he spoke, and tumbling out his sentences without finishing them as though someone would prevent him from phrasing them. "'The family of Ungern von Sternberg is an old family, a mixture of Germans with Hungarians, Huns from the time of Attila. My warlike ancestors took part in all the European struggles. They participated in the Crusades, and one Ungern was killed under the walls of Jerusalem, fighting under Richard Coeur de Lyon. Even the tragic crusade of the children was marked by the death of Ralph Ungern, eleven years old. When the boldest warriors of the country were dispatched to the eastern border of the German Empire against the Slavs in the twelfth century, my ancestor Arthur was among them, Baron Hausa Ungern Sturberg. Here these border knights formed the order of monk knights, or Teutons, which with fire and sword spread Christianity among the pagan Lithuanians Estonians, Latvians, and Slavs. Since then the Teuton Order of Knights has always had among its members representatives of our family. When the Teuton Order perished in the Grunwald, under the swords of the Polish and Lithuanian troops, two barons Ungern von Sterberg were killed there. Our family was warlike and given to mysticism and asceticism. During the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, Several barons von Ungern had their castles in the lands of Latvia and Estonia. Many legends and tales lived after them. Heinrich Ungern von Sternberg, called Axe, was a wandering knight. The tournaments of France, England, Spain, and Italy knew his name and lance, which filled the hearts of his opponents with fear. He fell at Cadiz, neath the sword of a knight who cleft both his helmet and his skull. Baron Ralph Ungern was a brigand knight, between Riga and Reval. Baron Peter Ungern had his castle on the island of Dago, in the Baltic Sea, where as a privateer he ruled the merchantmen of his day. In the beginning of the eighteenth century there was also a well-known Baron Wilhelm Ungern, who was referred to as the brother of Satan, because he was an alchemist. My grandfather was a privateer in the Indian Ocean, taking his tribute from the English traders whose warships could not catch him for several years. At last he was captured, and handed to the Russian consul, who transported him to Russia where he was sentenced to deportation to the Transbaikal. I am also a naval officer, but the Russo-Japanese war forced me to leave my regular profession to join and fight with the Zabaikal Cossacks. I have spent all my life in war, or in the study and learning of Buddhism. My grandfather brought Buddhism to us from India, and my father and I accepted and professed it. 
Entranced by Kalya, I tried to form the order of military Buddhists for an uncompromising fight against the depravity of revolution. He fell into silence, and began drinking cup after cup of tea as strong and black as coffee. Depravity of revolution! Has anyone ever thought of it besides the French philosopher Bergson and the most learned Tashi Lama in Tibet? The grandson of the privateer, quoting scientific theories, works, the names of scientists and writers, the Holy Bible and Buddhist books, mixing together French, German, Russian, and English, continued. In the Buddhistic and ancient Christian books we read stern predictions about the time when the war between the good and evil spirits must begin. Then there must come the unknown curse which will conquer the world, blot out culture, kill morality, and destroy all the people. Its weapon is revolution. During every revolution the previously experienced intellect creator will be replaced by the new rough force of the destroyer. He will place and hold in the first rank the lower instincts and desires. Man will be farther removed from the divine and the spiritual. The great war proved that humanity must progress upward toward higher ideals. But then appeared that curse which was seen and felt by Christ, the Apostle John, Buddha, the first Christian martyrs, Dante, Leonardo da Vinci, Goethe, and Dostoevsky. It appeared, turned back the wheel of progress, and blocked our road to the divinity. Revolution is an infectious disease, and Europe, making the treaty with Moscow, deceived itself and the other parts of the world. The great spirit put at the threshold of our lives karma, who knows neither anger nor pardon. He will reckon the account, whose total will be famine, destruction, the death of culture, of glory, of honour and of spirit, the death of states and the death of peoples. I see already this horror, this dark, mad destruction of humanity." The door of the yurta suddenly swung open and an adjutant snapped into a position of attention and salute. "'Why do you enter a room by force?' the general exclaimed in anger. "'Your Excellency, our outpost on the border has caught a Bolshevik reconnaissance party and brought them here.' The baron arose. His eyes sparkled and his face contracted with spasms. "'Bring them in front of my yurta!' he ordered. All was forgotten— the inspired speech, the penetrating voice, all were sunk in the austere order of the severe commander. The baron put on his cap, caught up the bamboo tashur which he always carried with him, and rushed from the yurta. I followed him out. There in front of the yurta stood six red soldiers, surrounded by the Cossacks. The baron stopped and glared sharply at them for several minutes. In his face one could see the strong play of his thoughts. Afterwards he turned away from them, sat down on the doorstep of the Chinese house, and for a long time was buried in thought. Then he rose, walked over to them, and, with an evident show of decisiveness in his movements, touched all the prisoners on the shoulder with his tessure, and said, "'You to the left, and you to the right!' As he divided the squad into two sections, four on the right and two on the left, "'Search those two. They must be commissars,' 
commanded the baron, and turning to the other four, asked, "'Are you peasants mobilized by the Bolsheviki?' "'Just so, Your Excellency,' cried the frightened soldiers. "'Go to the Commandant and tell him that I have ordered you to be enlisted in my troops.' On the two to the left, they found passports of commissars of the Communist Political Department. The general knitted his brows, and slowly pronounced the following. "'Beat them to death with sticks!' He turned and entered the yurta. After this our conversation did not flow readily, and so I left the baron to himself. After dinner in the Russian firm where I was staying, some of Ungern's officers came in. We were chatting animatedly when suddenly we heard the horn of an automobile, which instantly threw the officers into silence. "'The general is passing somewhere near,' one of them remarked in a strangely altered voice. Our interrupted conversation was soon resumed, but not for long. The clerk of the firm came running into the room and exclaimed, "'The Baron!' He entered the door, but stopped on the threshold. The lamps had not yet been lighted, and it was getting dark inside, but the Baron instantly recognized us all, approached and kissed the hand of the hostess, greeted everyone very cordially, and, accepting the cup of tea offered him, drew up to the table to drink. Soon he spoke. "'I want to steal your guest,' he said to the hostess, and then, turning to me, asked, "'Do you want to go for a motor-ride? I shall show you the city and the environs.' Donning my coat, I followed my established custom and slipped my revolver into it, at which the baron laughed. "'Leave that trash behind. Here you are in safety. Besides, you must remember the prediction of Narabanchi Hutuktu, that fortune will ever be with you.' "'All right,' I answered, also with a laugh. "'I remember very well this prediction. Only I do not know what the Hutuktu thinks fortune means for me.' Maybe it is death like the rest after my hard long trip, and I must confess that I prefer to travel farther and am not ready to die. We went out to the gate, where the big fiat stood with its intruding great lights. The chauffeur officer sat at the wheel like a statue, and remained at salute all the time we were entering and seating ourselves. "'To the wireless station,' commanded the baron. We veritably leaped forward. The city swarmed, as earlier, with the Oriental throng, but its appearance now was even more strange and miraculous. In among the noisy crowd Mongol, Buryat, and Tibetan riders threaded swiftly. Caravans of camels solemnly raised their heads as we passed. The wooden wheels of the Mongol carts screamed in pain, and all was illumined by splendid great arc-lights from the electric station which Baron Ungern had ordered erected immediately after the capture of Urga, together with a telephone system and wireless station. He also ordered his men to clean and disinfect the city, which had probably not felt the broom since the days of Genghis Khan. He arranged an autobus traffic between different parts of the city, built bridges over the Tola and Orkhan, published a newspaper, arranged a veterinary laboratory and hospitals, reopened the schools, protected commerce, mercilessly hanging Russian and Mongolian soldiers for pillaging Chinese firms. In one of these cases his commandant arrested two Cossacks and a Mongol soldier, 
who had stolen brandy from one of the Chinese shops and brought them before him. He immediately bundled them all into his car, drove off to the shop, delivered the brandy back to the proprietor, and as promptly ordered the Mongol to hang one of the Russians to the big gate of the compound. With this one swung he commanded, "'Now hang the other!' And this had only just been accomplished when he turned to the commandant and ordered him to hang the Mongol beside the other two. That seemed expeditious and just enough until the Chinese proprietor came in dire distress to the baron and pleaded with him, "'General Baron! General Baron! Please take those men down from my gateway, for no one will enter my shop!' After the commercial quarter was flashed past our eyes, we entered the Russian settlement across a small river. Several Russian soldiers and four very spruce-looking Mongolian women stood on the bridge as we passed. The soldiers snapped to salute like immobile statues, and fixed their eyes on the severe face of their commander. The women first began to run and shift about, and then, infected by the discipline and order of events, swung their hands up to salute, and stood as immobile as their northern swains. The baron looked at me and laughed. "'You see the discipline. Even the Mongolian women salute me.' Soon we were out on the plain with the car going like an arrow, with the wind whistling and tossing the folds of our coats and caps. But Baron Ungern, sitting with closed eyes, repeated, "'Faster! Faster!' For a long time we were both silent. "'And yesterday I beat my adjutant for rushing into my yurta and interrupting my story,' he said. "'You can finish it now,' I answered. "'And are you not bored by it? Well, there isn't much left, and this happens to be the most interesting. I was telling you that I wanted to found an order of military Buddhists in Russia. For what? For the protection of the processes of evolution of humanity, and for the struggle against revolution, because I am certain that evolution leads to the divinity, and revolution to bestiality. But I worked in Russia, in Russia, where the peasants are rough, untutored, wild and constantly angry, hating everybody and everything without understanding why. They are suspicious and materialistic, having no sacred ideals. Russian intelligence live among imaginary ideals without realities. They have a strong capacity for criticizing everything, but they lack creative power. Also they have no will-power, only the capacity for talking and talking. With the peasants, they cannot like anything or anybody. Their love and feelings are imaginary. Their thoughts and sentiments pass without trace like futile words. My companions, therefore, soon began to violate the regulations of the order. Then I introduced the condition of celibacy, the entire negation of woman, of the comforts of life, of superfluities, according to the teachers of the yellow faith, and— in order that the Russian might be able to live down his physical nature, I introduced the limitless use of alcohol, hashish, and opium. Now for alcohol I hang my officers and soldiers. Then we drank to the white fever, delirium tremens. I could not organize the order, but I gathered round me and developed three hundred men wholly bold and entirely ferocious. Afterward they were heroes in the war with Germany, and later in the fight against the Bolsheviki, but now 
Only a few remain. The wire, Excellency, reported the chauffeur. Turn in there, ordered the general. On the top of a flat hill stood the big, powerful radio station, which had been partially destroyed by the retreating Chinese, but reconstructed by the engineers of Baron Ungern. The general perused the telegrams and handed them to me. They were from Moscow, Chita, Vladivostok, and Peking. On a separate yellow sheet were the code messages, which the baron slipped into his pocket, as he said to me, "'They are from my agents, who are stationed in Chita, Irkutsk, Harbin, and Vladivostok. They are all Jews, very skilled and very bold men, friends of mine all. I have also one Jewish officer, Volfovich, who commands my right flank. He is as ferocious as Satan, but clever and brave.' Now we shall fly into space. Once more we rushed away, sinking into the darkness of night. It was a wild ride. The car bounded over small stones and ditches, even taking narrow streamlets, as the skilled chauffeur only seemed to guide it round the larger rocks. On the plain, as we sped by, I noticed several times small bright flashes of fire which lasted but for a second, and then were extinguished. The eyes of wolves, smiled my companion. We have fed them to satiety from the flesh of ourselves and our enemies, he quietly interpolated, as he turned to continue his confession of faith. During the war we saw the gradual corruption of the Russian army, and foresaw the treachery of Russia to the Allies, as well as the approaching danger of revolution. To counteract this latter, a plan was formed to join together all the Mongolian peoples which had not forgotten their ancient faiths and customs into one Asiatic state, consisting of autonomous tribal units, under the moral and legislative leadership of China, the country of loftiest and most ancient culture. Into this state must come the Chinese, Mongols, Tibetans, Afghans, the Mongol tribes of Turkestan, Tartars, Buryats, Kyrgyz and Kalmuks. This state must be strong, physically and morally, and must erect a barrier against revolution, and carefully preserve its own spirit, philosophy, and individual policy. If humanity, mad and corrupted, continues to threaten the divine spirit in mankind, to spread blood and to obstruct moral development, the Asiatic state must terminate this movement decisively, and establish a permanent firm peace. This propaganda even during the war made splendid progress among the Turkomans, Kyrgyz, Buryats, and Mongols. Stop! suddenly shouted the baron. The car pulled up with a jerk. The general jumped out and called me to follow. We started walking over the prairie, and the baron kept bending down all the time as though he was looking for something on the ground. Ah! he murmured at last. He has gone away. I looked at him in amazement. A rich Mongol formerly had his yurta here. He was the outfitter for the Russian merchant Noskov. Noskov was a ferocious man as shown by the name the Mongols gave him, Satan. He used to have his Mongol debtors beaten or imprisoned through the instrumentality of the Chinese authorities. He ruined this Mongol, who lost everything and escaped to a place thirty miles away, but Noskov found him there, took all that he had left of cattle and horses, 
and left the Mongol and his family to die of hunger. When I captured Urga, this Mongol appeared and brought with him thirty other Mongol families similarly ruined by Noskov. They demanded his death. So I hung Satan. I knew the motor car was rushing along, sweeping a great circle on the prairie, and anew Baron Ungern, with his sharp, nervous voice, carried his thoughts round the whole circumference of Asian life. Russia turned traitor to France, England, and America, signed the Brest-Liftovsk Treaty, and ushered in a reign of chaos. We then decided to mobilize Asia against Germany. Our envoys penetrated Mongolia, Tibet, Turkestan, and China. At this time the Bolsheviki began to kill all the Russian officers, and we were forced to open civil war against them, giving up our pan-Asiatic plans. But we hope later to awake all Asia, and with their help to bring peace and God back to earth. I want to feel that I have helped this idea by the liberation of Mongolia. He became silent, and thought for a moment. But some of my associates in the movement do not like me, because of my atrocities and severity, he remarked in a sad voice. They cannot understand as yet that we are not fighting a political party, but a sect of murderers of all contemporary spiritual culture. Why do the Italians execute the Black Hand Gang? Why are the Americans electrocuting anarchistic bomb-throwers? And I am not allowed to rid the world of those who would kill the soul of the people? I, a Teuton, descendant of crusaders and privateers? I recognize only death for murderers! "'Return!' he commanded the chauffeur. An hour and a half later we saw the electric lights of Urga. End of chapter